German philosophers Karl Marx and Friedrich Engels wrote and published a pamphlet in 1847 called the Communist Manifesto. It explained the goals of communism and what lay behind the movement, and it lay out a framework for a plan to change the world. Early in Jesus' public ministry, he also issued a manifesto. It would explain his purpose in ministry. Now, when you think about why Jesus came to earth, it's very simple. The gospel writer Luke put it this way in chapter 19, speaking to Zacchaeus, that tax collector who was now the recipient of God's grace. And Jesus said, For the Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost. Oh, there are other consequences and byproducts of Jesus' ministry, but above all, we need to see it as redemptive, seeking and saving the lost. Now, Luke mentions the expansive ministry that Jesus begins after the temptations in the wilderness that we considered last week. So if you would make your way in your Bible to the Gospel of Luke, chapter 4, you grab a Bible in front of you, page 1093, Luke chapter 4. Not many details, just a summary. And look what he writes in verse 14. And Jesus, this is right after the temptations, returned in the power of the Spirit to Galilee, and a report about him went out through all the surrounding country. And he taught in their synagogues, being glorified by all. Again, no details, really. But after this summary statement, Luke turns his attention to Jesus' visit to his hometown, the little village of Nazareth. Now, if you're participating in our summer reading program in the Gospel of Luke, this is your reading today, so this is a freebie, okay? You have the afternoon off. Um, but follow along as I read this story, and then we're going to go back and, and look at it at a little bit closer, starting at verse 16. And Jesus came to Nazareth, where he'd been brought up. And as was his custom, he went to the synagogue on the Sabbath day, and he stood up to read. And the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was given to him. He enrolled the scroll and found the place where it was written, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because he's anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering of sight to the blind to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And he rolled up the scroll and gave it back to the attendants and sat down. And the eyes of all in the synagogue were fixed on him. And he began to say to them, Today this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. And all spoke well of him and marveled at the gracious words that were coming from his mouth. And they said, Is this Joseph's son? And he said to them, Doubtless you will quote to me this proverb, Physician, heal yourself. What, you have heard, what we've heard you did at Capernaum, do here in your hometown as well. And he said, Truly I say to you, no prophet is acceptable in his hometown. But in truth I tell you, there were many widows in Israel in the days of Elijah when the heavens were shut up three years and six months and a great famine came over all the land. And Elijah was sent to none of them, but only to Zarephath in the land of Sidon, to a woman who was a widow. 
And there were many lepers in Israel at the time of the prophet Elijah, and none of them were cleansed, but only Naaman the Syrian. When they heard these things, all in the synagogue were filled with rage, and they rose up and drove him out of town and brought him to the brow on the hill on which their town was built so that they could throw him down the cliff. But passing through their midst, he went away. There are four, to me, four revealing aspects or characteristics of Jesus' ministry here in his manifesto. The first is that it was incarnational. We notice that God did not send the message of redemptive hope by telegraph, by email, by Facebook, by Twitter, but he sent it by a messenger. God steps out of eternity into time in human flesh and declares the kingdom is here. The Apostle John captures this truth in the prologue to his gospel when he writes in verse 14, chapter 1, and the word that is the eternally existing logos, which he describes in verses 1 and 2, became flesh and dwelt among us. And we beheld his glory, glory as of the only begotten from the Father, full of grace and truth. And Jesus identifies himself as the person referred to by the prophet Isaiah. There can be no other person in mind as he concludes the reading of that passage with these words, today this has been fulfilled. In other words, you don't need to look elsewhere. You don't need to look at some future time. The person that the prophet spoke of is here. He's in your midst. I am he. What an electrifying moment in that synagogue in Nazareth. It was also proclamational. Quoting from the prophet Isaiah, Jesus says that he has come to proclaim, it's the word to preach, to preach, to declare, to proclaim the message. And it's a message of good news. It wasn't just look at my life and believe. There was propositional truth that he came to communicate. And then thirdly, it was transformational. This was a message that would transform people's lives. And in Jesus' blending of the words, and with whoever got up to read from the prophets, not the Torah, but in the prophets, they had some liberty in, in, in the text. And so what Jesus does is he blends most of, of Isaiah 61 with a little bit of chapter 58, Isaiah. And he mentions four groups of people to illustrate the transforming power of the good news and what would come then of his ministry. The first is that the poor would hear good news. Now that word poor can be applied to poverty of all kinds, and there's a lot that the scriptures say on how we're to treat the poor. But the emphasis in both the Old and the New Testament is that this is poverty of a moral and spiritual kind. It's the same word that Jesus uses when he says, blessed are the poor in spirit for theirs will be the kingdom of heaven. Kenneth Bailey, in his book, Jesus Through Middle Eastern Eyes, writes, to turn this word in Luke 4.16 into nothing more than politics and economics is to ignore history. <laughs> Luke's gospel affirms that in Jesus, God has visited and redeemed his people. 
In every age, the church has proclaimed that in Jesus there is hope, light, and direction for those who earnestly seek to love God and their neighbors. The poor will hear good news. And he says that liberty is proclaimed to captives. The technical meaning of the word translated captives is prisoners of war. Now, it's not used here in a literal sense for Jesus hearers, but would broadly symbolize those who are in spiritual bondage. And we'll see throughout Luke's gospel as you read that people are in bondage. People are in bondage to money and material things. They're in bondage to Satan. They're in bondage to guilt. They're in bondage to hatred. And Jesus has come to set them free. And as we see in Scripture, ultimately we are all in bondage apart from Christ. And thus the need for a Savior, which is at the heart of Jesus' manifesto. Charles Wesley put this truth to words in the hymn, Oh, for a Thousand Tongues to Sing, written in 1739 this way. He breaks the power of canceled sin. He sets the prisoner free. His blood can make the foulest clean. His blood availed for me. And then Jesus says that the blind receive their sight. Now, restoring the sight of the blind was a prophetic identifier of the coming Messiah. Matthew in his gospel, Luke also in his gospel, tells of John the baptizer sending of his disciples to Jesus to ask, are you the Christ? Or are we to look for somebody else? And Jesus says to these messengers of John, go and tell John what you see and hear. And the first thing that he mentions is that the blind receive their sight. Again, there will be an aspect of blind people recovering their physical sight. Jesus restored the sight of blind people on more than one occasion that we read in the Gospels. But the deeper meaning demonstrated in the Gospel accounts is that those who are blind spiritually will see. They'll have their eyes opened. John, in his Gospel account, chapter 9, tells of Jesus healing a man who had been born blind. And it creates a major confrontation between the man, his parents, and the religious authorities. The formerly blind man is cast out of the temple by the religious leaders, and he goes and he finds Jesus, the one who has brought about this amazing miracle. And then Jesus said to him, For judgment I came into this world, that those who do not see may see, and those who see may become blind. Jesus was clearly talking about spiritual blindness here. And in his redemptive ministry, Jesus opens the eyes of those who are spiritually blind and leads them from darkness into light. Fourthly, we read from Isaiah that the oppressed are set at liberty. The idea behind this word oppressed is broken in pieces or shattered or crushed. Jesus comes to bring liberty to those who are crushed by life's circumstances, for those who are oppressed by life's situation, and he comes and he sets them free. And we see it over and over and over again in his ministry. Those who are oppressed, he sets free and gives them life. Now, a fourth thing that we see about Jesus' ministry in his manifesto is that it was confrontational. Though the people of Nazareth were impressed, they were not persuaded. In fact, 
when Jesus began to compare their unbelief with the belief of Gentiles, it's the proverbial straw that breaks the camel's back. They become irate. And, and, and they, as tools of the devil, seek to, to end Jesus' life, to bring about his mission prematurely at its very beginning. Now, our English text, if you were to look, remember as we were reading, it gives the impression that the people of Nazareth had good feelings about this hometown lad as he began to speak. But then later on, they flipped 180 degrees. Now, there's a little ambiguity in the Greek text in verse 22. The text literally reads, and they witnessed him. What it doesn't tell us is, did they witness for him or did they witness against him? That's sort of left to the, to the translator to put in. I happen to think it's more the latter. That, that it's more likely uh, not an abrupt change, but from the very get-go, they were having a problem with this guy. And here's one of the reasons why. When Jesus starts reading from Isaiah 61, primarily from 61, he doesn't finish the sentence. He closed the scroll and he slat, sat down prematurely. Because if you go to the text of Isaiah 61, verse 2, it reads this, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor and the day of vengeance of our God. And in the context of Isaiah 61, it has to do with God's vengeance against Gentiles. And those in this very Jewish settlement of Nazareth would have fully endorsed God's judgment upon the Gentiles. But see, what Jesus is doing is separating a ministry of redemption and a ministry of vengeance in his first coming. His first coming was all about a redemptive mission. It was to redeem people. In his second coming, it will be a coming of judgment. And so the only way Jesus could say this is fulfilled today in your hearing was to only read the redemptive portion of it. And this infuriates the hearers. In fact, he even goes further than that because now he gives a couple of illustrations that these people would be aware of, stories of their prophets. It's God, that God sent two of his prophets to perform miracles among Gentiles, not Jews. And in both cases, the Gentile widow and the Gentile military leader were willing to believe the word of God that came to him from the prophet and God preserved their lives. If only those in Nazareth had been willing to believe the word of God that came to them from his prophet Jesus, they too would have seen his power operating in their midst. Ken Hughes writes, of course, that was the problem. Because in their own eyes, they were not poor. They were the good, respectable, synagogue-attending, family-oriented, solid citizens of Nazareth. The comparison with those two Gentiles was a massive insult. And they can't take it. They've had enough. And they drive Jesus out of the synagogue, and they take him to the edge of the cliff upon which their village had been built, and they're ready to throw him over. And then we read this amazing ending of the story. Look back again in Luke 4 at verse 29. They rose up, they drove him out of the town, brought him to the brow of the hill on which their town was built so that they could throw him down the cliff. But passing through their midst, he went away. Let me tell you, the great Cecil B. DeMille couldn't have produced a better screenplay. 
You know, I just, it's just one of those things you want to imagine in your eye what it was like as the crowd are picking up stones as they're ready to drive them on the cliff and Jesus at the edge of the cliff. So it's kind of like a high diver, you know, out on the toes. And he turns and he looks and then he simply begins to walk and the crowd parts like the Red Sea and he just walks in their midst and goes on his way. Jesus' ministry manifesto to preach the good news of the gospel, to proclaim the favorable year of the Lord. Now, with Jesus' ministry manifesto before us, then how should we look at ministry today? We talk a lot about ministry here at Knollwood, as we should, because it's the ministry, the service that God gives to us. But how should we look at that? When we come to believe in Jesus, uh, we're now part of his redemptive work in the present time. And I would suggest to you that we ought to see ministry in the same four ways that is revealed in Jesus' ministry manifesto of Luke 4. The first thing is that it's incarnational. Jesus told his disciples in the upper room before his betrayal and death, I'm going away, but it's to your advantage because when I go, I'm going to send another, the helper, who will be with you and who will be in you. And God the Spirit today indwells the heart of every believer. And so you see, as we, re as we relate to each other, as we relate to others, the gospel, it's incarnational. The Apostle Paul describes it in the letter to the Colossians as, quote, the riches of the glory of this mystery among the Gentiles, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. There's a song I love from years ago. Gordon Jensen wrote it. Uh, but it goes like this because it speaks of this truth. If not in you, I wonder where will they ever see the one who really cares? If not from you, how will they find there's one who heals the brokenhearted and gives sight to the blind? If not in you, I wonder who will show them love and love alone can make things new. If not from you, how will they learn there's one who will trade their hopelessness for joy in return. And then the refrain is, because you're the only Jesus some will ever see. And you're the only words of life some will ever read. So let them see in you the one in whom is all they'll ever need, because you're the only Jesus some will ever see. Ministry is incarnational. And God lives his life through us today to carry on his redemptive ministry. Oh, he's the only one who saves. We're simply a channel. But he wants to use us. The second thing we have to know about ministry today is it's, it's proclamational. There is propositional truth that must be proclaimed. It must be communicated. It's the message of the gospel, the good news. And God has called us to proclaim this truth that the kingdom of God is here. In Romans chapter 10, Paul asks a number of penetrating questions. He writes, How then will they call on him in whom they have not believed? How are they to believe in him of whom they have never heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? And how are they to preach unless they are sent? So faith comes by hearing and hearing through the word of Christ. Is there any other greater ministry, mission in life than proclaiming the grace of God found in the gospel? In whatever capacity you serve, 
in whatever situation, wherever it might be, we have the privilege of declaring good news. And then it's transformational. God still changes lives, and he brings light to those living in darkness. He brings hope to those in despair. He brings redemption to those living in bondage to sin. He brings freedom to those who are enslaved by self. That's the good news of the gospel. And when we think about transformation, it really happens at two different levels. It happens on a macro level, the eternal level. Um, Jesus said this, Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life. He does not come into judgment, but is passed from death to life. Our position, our legal status has changed. But transformation also happens at the micro level, at the, at, the, at, the, at the temporal level in our lives. And so Paul speaks of God's intent and his work in our lives through the transforming work of the Spirit. And he writes in Romans 12, Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, which is good and acceptable and perfect. Finally, if our ministry is of Jesus, if it's his ministry, sometimes it will be confrontational. Jesus told his disciples gathered in the upper room in Jerusalem, if the world hates you, know that it has hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. But because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. We should never be surprised that people reject the things of God. Think about it. They rejected the very Son of God who was in their midst and did works of miracles. But when he talked about his uniqueness and he talked about his distinctiveness as God's only way to the Father, people rejected him and his message. So we should expect that there are many in our day who will reject this same message, this good news. God's people have always faced opposition. But in humility and obedience, we continue to bear witness to this amazing grace of God. And our lives are to be a living testament to that grace. When you read on this week in Luke's Gospel, you're going to read a story of another miracle that is so illustrative of Jesus' manifesto. On Thursday, you're going to read the story of the paralytic whose four friends bring him to Jesus. Jesus is teaching in a house. A lot of the religious scribes and Pharisees present. And then I'm sure people standing outside trying to listen in, and it is so crowded they cannot push their way in. And so they go up on the roof. There might have been an outside staircase behind or ladder, whatever it was. But they go up on this roof, and they begin to tear through the covering and the mud that's there and the sticks, and then they get down and part the, 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 the uh, branches that are crossing there so that they can lower their friend all the way down into Jesus' midst. I often wonder, what was it like for the scribes and Pharisees to be sitting down there, and all of a sudden this plop, plop, and all of a sudden this dirt and other stuff is coming in. <coughs> They lure him down into Jesus' presence, and Jesus responds to fascinating words in the text. Jesus responds to the faith of his friends, the paralytic's friends, and he turns and he says to the man, man, your sins are forgiven. 
I don't think anybody expected that. But listen, this is a setup by Jesus. Because only God can forgive sins. This is a messianic sign. And it's something the scribes and the Pharisees in the room clearly understood. And this really stirs up the religious people that are there. Because they know if Jesus has the authority to forgive sins, then he is authenticating his claim to be God. Now, in Jesus' day, the people made a, a, a usual connection between illness and sin. And, and they probably are connecting his uh, paralysis to some sins that he committed. And if that's really the case, then Jesus goes right to the issue, responding to the, to the faith of the man's friends. And I have to assume there's also faith on the part of the paralytic who's allowed his friends to haul him off like that and, and to do such a dra drastic thing. But in this case, the physical miracle authenticates the spiritual, redemptive miracle. Look at in Luke 5. Turn over there quickly and look at verses 24 and 25. Jesus says to him, Well, but that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins, he said to the man who was paralyzed, I say to you, rise, pick up your bed, and go home. And immediately he rose up before them and picked up what he had been lying on and went home glorifying God. Now, there's another way that we could look at this, and that is that Jesus addresses the most important problem, the primary problem, and that is of sin. This is Jesus in his redemptive ministry. Listen, the man could go into heaven as a paralytic. He could just as well go into hell fully well. But Jesus came to seek and to save the lost. This is his mission. This was the purpose for which he came. This is his ministry manifesto. And we're on the receiving end of this ministry <clears throat> when we respond in faith to the good news of the gospel. <clears throat> God makes his children, makes us his children, and then he entrusts us with this ministry that he came to have. But he is now out of the world, and he asks us to carry on the ministry and is carried on humanly through us. And so we have this great privilege to be involved in his work as bearers of God's grace to others. The Apostle Peter exhorts us to always be ready to give an answer to anyone who should ask for the hope within us. Listen, the writing of Peter and in the setting, it's not a courtroom situation where you're putting on a defense. It simply means to give an answer. When someone can say, I see you going through difficulty and yet I still see joy in your life. Or I see how you're handling life's circumstances. Why is that? Have an answer. The answer is Christ in me. It's what he brings to that. Really, this message is for everyone because I can go in two directions. First of all, the gospel is good news. Have you believed it? That's what we were reminded of this morning, that Jesus came to die for our sins. Either he died for it and we accept that, or we will die for our own sins eternally. So have we believed the gospel? Jesus came to seek and to save you. And if you believe the gospel... And if you become God's child, do you believe in the power of the gospel? The Apostle Paul wrote to the Romans and he said this, For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to those who believe. 
And so wherever you are today, that, that's the question. Is, have I believed the gospel? And if I have, is it making a difference? Do I really believe it has the power to save someone? Because that's the good news that we have to offer and to give to other people. Life-changing message that God has given to you and me. Would you pray with me? Father, thank you so much for the redemption that comes because of Jesus. Thank you that in the counsel of the Godhead that you decided together, God the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit, that the Son would take on human flesh, that he would come, live a sinless life, that he had a ministry manifesto of seeking and saving the lost, that his life was destined to death on a cross. And through that, God, you are free to forgive and to restore sinners into a right relationship with yourself. So thank you for the good news of the gospel. Lord, may we be captured by it in our lives. May we also realize this amazing message that we have for others that are in need of a Savior. We pray all these things in Jesus' name.